do design decisions involve value judgments? Andy Halliwell has gone and posted this question on LinkedIn as part of our redesigning D&T project and debates. I think this is a really tricky one to answer and our expert group felt that it was an important question that needed debating. Do design decisions involve value judgments? I think firstly, I'd be saying, what do you mean by a value judgment, a values judgment? And maybe in your response to Andy's question, you'll explore what you understand and what your views are of what value judgments are and then whether they actually impinge on or affect the design decisions that designers make and also that children make in D&T lessons. So do join the debate. We're always open to conversation and discussion on this. But for now, on to the next episode. This is the Talking D&T podcast, episode 63. Welcome to the Talking D&T podcast with me, Alison Hardy, a podcast for anybody interested in design and technology education, where I'll be sharing news, views, ideas and opinions about D&T. I began a few weeks ago starting to talk about the history of design and technology, but doing it through looking at my history in design and technology and my time in D&T. And I finished episode two um, of four parts talking about the end of the 2000s when there'd been a change in national curriculum in 2007 and some of the 14 to 19 agenda and things that have been going on. And I shared how towards the end of that period, I actually left design and technology for a while. I went and worked in further education. And then came back in 2009, 2010, when I started working at Nottingham Trent. And I've had to take uh, quite a pause thinking about this and thinking about the reasons why I left and how I felt when I came back into design and technology. I actually felt um, really excited about being back. I realised that D&T was where my sort of professional heart lay, where I wanted to be. But when I came back, I was surprised at almost how little had changed in the four to five years had gone. Now, you could say that's a good thing, that that demonstrates a stability about the subject. But much of what I was hearing in terms of research and different thinking or new thinking about how we taught the subject wasn't any different. And I was I was quite disappointed, for want of a, of a better phrase um, or a better word, um, when I when I came back and, and saw some of those conversations. But I, I moved into working in teacher education at this point at Nottingham Trent. And it coincided sort of later than my first year at Nottingham Trent with a coalition government that very quickly with the new Secretary of State for Education, which was Michael Gove at that time, bringing in new ideas about curriculum and about education. And I'm, I'm not going to go through the politics of all of those changes that happened in England. But some of those decisions did have some intentional consequences on design and technology and some unintended consequences on design and technology. And one of the things that happened was a national curriculum review, which when the review came out in December 2011 
talked about all school subjects, but one of the notable things it said about design and technology is the recommendation that D&T shouldn't be part of the national curriculum anymore. It should be part of a basic curriculum and locally designed. Now, this caused, understandably, quite an, an outcry in the D&T community, and, and I was part of that. And I wrote several blog posts at the time, uh, analysing what they'd said, and then when a new curriculum came out for design and technology, um, about 18 months later, 15 months later, I wrote quite quite extensively a critique on that new curriculum. And so what it left me thinking about was, in this time, who who were making the noises about design and technology, who was objecting, who was being heard, who had the, the power to change things. And alongside this, I started doing my doctorate, looking at the value of design and technology. Um, that was very much up for debate at that, that time. And there were different people writing about it. And one of the things that came out from the work I was doing initially is that, that people didn't agree on what the value of D&T was. And, and at the time, I found that quite difficult. Um, I've, I've talked before about listening to different people's views early on in my research and um, people talking about the value of D&T and people not agreeing with me, which I found at the time quite outrageous that um, surely I had the right way of thinking about D&T, the best way of thinking. Um, but that's what comes when you only almost talk to yourself or you talk to your echo chamber. But when you start to talk to other people and hear what they're saying, you get different perspectives. So what came out from the National Curriculum Review, so I, I'd analysed who was on the panel and I wasn't completely convinced that they had a, a good understanding about design and technology. But I was also not convinced about where they might get the messages from and who might be influencing or shaping their ideas and where they might get experiences. And one of the places that I suspect a lot of people in what I might call macro power, so that's national power, to influence the shape of a school subject, such as design and technology, if they're not getting their opinions from published works about the subject, or when they are reading about the subject in published works, it's not necessarily clear to them. I'm not saying it's not clear, I'm just saying it's not clear to them. Then the second place they might get or the main place they might get a perception about what design and technology is and what it's for and what its value is, is from their own children. So that made me think about how and why and where our values are shaped of the subject. It's not just by our own direct experiences and what we read and what we see, but also they're influenced by the people around us. So I kind of got thinking, and I'd never got an answer to this and didn't even go and really explore it, but I thought, pretty sure Michael Gove's got children. I wonder where they do design and technology. Who teaches them? Who's giving him that kind of backdoor information about what D&T is through what his children are experiencing? And I do think that um, influence and that power and that voice comes in shaping the curriculum in, in different ways. And that led me on to thinking. So I've taken a few weeks to think about this because I think there were a lot of things going on and it got me to thinking about when 
a group of us were called together at the Royal Academy of Engineers back in April 2013, I think it was, to come together and propose a new design and technology national curriculum. And I think there were about 40 of us brought together. I don't know how my name got on the list. Um, There were quite a few people in the room who I recognised. But there were some people who weren't there that I had expected to be there. And that group of us came together and we basically split up the national curriculum and and went away for the day and beavered away and made some contribution, which I then know was taken on by a smaller group and and worked up into a a national curriculum, which was then submitted to the Secretary of State um, and the Department for Education as a proposed new national curriculum for DNT. So that got me thinking about who has the voice, who has the opportunity to influence those in power at a macro level, who has the voice, the power, the legitimacy at what I might say is a meso level to shape curriculum for design and technology. And a meso level to me would be more local, would be at school level, might even take that down to departmental level, but really at school level. And so if you're in England and you're a state school, it might be the local level might be your academy. If you're part of a trust, it might be your academy trust. You might have somebody coordinating D&T across. And then if we take it down to the micro level, the classroom level, who has the power and the legitimacy there to influence and shape the nature, form, value and purpose of design and technology? And I've done some work on this, thinking about how we think about how curriculum is shaped and developed at those different levels. And and I think it's worth using language from business about stakeholders. And I'm building on some work here by um, John Williams, uh, who's an Australian. I'll put a link um, to his chapter where I first read about, about these ideas about stakeholders and who has power legitimacy and urgency to shape, influence the status, content, curriculum, value, purpose of design and technology. So to make something happen in design and technology, whether it's at that macro, meso or micro level, the stakeholder, a stakeholder, has or needs to have power to make the change, legitimacy, they have to have a right to be doing it, and they have to have an urgency that makes it happen, that that drives it on. And for me, those people, those stakeholder groups at each of those levels, macro, national, meso, local, micro, classroom, are different. So at the macro level, in terms of changing the nature and the shape of design and technology, Department for Education, in terms of that they lead on the policy, they create the policy, they publish the policy, they own the policy. Now we know that that policy isn't necessarily enacted, taught, delivered in the way that it's intended, but at that level... And at that level, they have the power, the legitimacy 
and the urgency because they are aligned to working for a government who has a time limited uh, period because of general elections to to have that power. Now, at, at that level or at any level, if you only have one or two of those characteristics, you have to team up with somebody who has the third to make things happen. And I think that was partly what was happening in April 2013 when a group of people came together to propose a new national curriculum. There'd been a February one which had been pretty appalling. And so as a result, this group came together and the Royal Academy and Design and Technology Association brought that together. But actually, the group had the power, the legitimacy and the urgency to do it. Some of those people in that room had the voice to talk up to the government. And some of those people had the power to talk down. I don't really like to use that language of implying that up is more powerful than down, but to talk along to the micro level of the classroom. And the legitimacy and urgency in the room, there were teachers, so they have an urgency if the subject becomes part of a basic curriculum, it has less strength of position in the curriculum. And so jobs are at risk, departments are at risk. And we, we've seen that happen as an intended or unintended consequence of performance measures like the EBAC. So I've found it helpful as I've reflected on that time to, to think about people having power, legitimacy and urgency to change the shape, nature, value, purpose, content of design and technology education. And it needs to happen at different levels, but it also needs to happen with a consistency and an agreement across those levels. Now, whether that agreement is complete agreement, I don't think that is possible and I don't think that is sensible to strive for. But what it does say to me is thinking about the work that I'm doing with Eddie in starting to think about what's next for design and technology. You could say, who are we to do that? I don't have power in a classroom, neither does Eddie. We have legitimacy because of our beliefs, research, work, teaching in design and technology. Do we have urgency? We have some. I have some urgency because I see the threat that design and technology is under. Um, so there is that urgency. But we have to work with others to come together to empower, cause change in the classroom, which I think is really where it needs to be working. It's great to have these committees. You know, uh, Robert McCormack, Bob McCormack talked in 1987 about, I think it was 1987, I mean later, about uh, a national curriculum being designed by a committee. Well, the 2013 one was designed by a committee. But somehow that committee has to speak to those who are enacting, delivering, teaching that curriculum, the design and technology teachers. So that's the work that me and Eddie are trying to do is actually use our experience and our knowledge to actually engage those who have the power, the legitimacy and the urgency, the D&T practitioners, in talking about what's next for design and technology. Because things will change. There will be a new government. 
there will be new ideas about a national curriculum. The subject, as with other school subjects, is constantly under reflection and change. But I think if teachers can come together, share their practice, which is why I'm very, I'm a great advocate for teachers writing uh, about their practice, publishing their practice, getting it peer reviewed, because it all adds to the credibility and the body of knowledge about the subject that people outside can read. So it gives a, a gives a power to what we're doing. And so thinking about the next stage for design and technology, whilst looking back at what has happened and using that idea of power, legitimacy and urgency, who has those things to make a difference to what's happening in design and technology? And for me, D&T practitioners, teachers, researchers are the ones where it's happening, who understand and can see and can try things out in the classroom and can come together to make a difference to the nature, the purpose, the value of design and technology. So that's why I think it's useful to look back on history, to reflect on it, to reflect on what went well, what could be improved, to evaluate it, but also to learn from it, to use it as something to look forward to, to thinking about what's the next form, shape, iteration, development of design and technology education. Because if we use the language of design, then the curriculum at the moment is only a resolution. It's not a solution. That's why we have new curriculum, new conversations about content and pedagogy for design and technology. Anyway, I hope that's given you something to think about. That's taken me a few weeks to reflect on that. Um, I've taken a pause from the podcast. There'll be episode four coming up where I'm going to look back to pre-1990. And as ever, if you've got your thoughts, your opinions about the changing nature and value of design and technology, I'd love to hear from you. And if you want to get involved in the work that me and Eddie are doing and contribute and share your thoughts, then, then please do. You can find me on Twitter in the at Alison, at Hardy underscore Alison, um, or you can find me via my website, dralisonhardy.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Talking DT podcast with me, Alison Hardy. You can connect with me on Twitter at Hardy underscore Alison. Show notes and transcripts for each podcast episode can be found on my website, alisonhardy.work. Thanks for listening. Thank you.